0: This episode is sponsored by a donor to the True Athlete Project, or TAP. TAP improves athletic performance, nurtures mental health, and cultivates a more compassionate society. They do this by delivering mindfulness based, socially conscious programs for coaches and athletes of all sports and at all levels, from grassroots to Olympians. Visit the true On this episode, we have Lee Symbolic. Lee followed his youthful passion for soccer and joined a pro team after college. Unfortunately, a hip injury would preclude him from pursuing his promising career. He switched to coaching and would eventually develop a training system that he would launch in his own technology company called Preception to aid with awareness and decision making. He is also an accomplished author.
1: Mm -hmm. Lee, thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so we were talking a little bit in the preamble about uh, the diversity of Vancouver um, and um, share with us a little bit about your background and when you got to Vancouver. I know that your family origin hails from the Ukraine.
2: Yeah, so uh, going going back to great-grandparents, uh, it's Ukrainian on both sides um, and then they ended up coming to Canada and Saskatchewan. So in Saskatchewan, there's there's a lot of Eastern Europeans, uh, got a plot of land, started farming and wow. both my my parents came, uh, were born in Saskatchewan and then that's where I was born as well and slowly made my way out, out west for, uh, for, I could say for university, but really
1: it was for soccer. Um, so did you move to Vancouver with your family or you came alone and they're still <laughs> back in Saskatchewan? Yeah, I, I came
2: alone um, when I was, I was 17. So I was just on my gotcha. own for university. And, for Simon uh, Fraser University. Correct. It was, it ended up being the perfect blend between uh, Canadian education as they're one of the, the top ranked
1: schools in the nation for yeah. undergrads, but competed in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> Lee, I've got to ask the question. Um, you're g- growing up probably surrounded by a bunch of ice hockey fanatics and peers who are in love with that sport why soccer why football you know what
2: I uh I I know I started playing competitively when I was four so it's sort of before memories really (laughs) really get (laughs) formed and I can remember what I felt like but I, I have an older brother that's four years older and and he was playing um so I think it was just natural of wanting wanting to be like my older brother and saw him kicking a ball around and and that's what I wanted to do but I uh,
1: I don't remember a point where I ever
2: thought about other sports it was just wow. that right from the start and, nice. and it kind of captured great. me
1: and and I think also uh, in the household uh, your parents uh, and extended family were following uh, world f- football and what was happening in Europe and so forth A a
2: little bit. When actually growing up, we never had cable, and uh, one of the nice things that I and memories I remember is we got cable every four years for the World Cup. (laughs) So it was it was that sort of special time I I remember from the. World Cup 90 was the, the first one I really, or, sorry, 94 was the one I remembered we we recorded every game on VHS and and then that sort of acted as, as games to watch and rewatch over the next while and provide entertainment.
1: So uh, we oh. always enjoyed it as a family, though. Nice. Now that's important. That becomes a big part of the backdrop. Now, mm-hmm. you talked about your older brother, and I know that that impact a lot kind of um, where you've taken uh, the sport today and your company and, and kind of those experiences so uh, share about that and and how it was being playing with these older kids who are four years older and, and, uh, and that age uh, that it makes a difference size wise so tell us about that
2: yeah I uh... Where I was extremely fortunate, um, aside from just, just having a really supportive older brother that didn't care as much as little brother would hang around, um, but but I would always be there uh, at his practices, at his games, and uh, the coach who, who was a South American, um, sorry, Central American from uh, El Salvador, he ended up including me in warm-ups. And then and then slowly including me into passing exercises when they needed an extra player and then into possession just as a neutral or to make up numbers a little bit. And and what started happening was I was just being challenged more and more and more. And, and eventually I started fitting in with them. So eventually I was playing sort of three, four years up and going to tournaments with them. and And it was just one of those things where as I got older, I realized, um, you know, I was, I mean, I'm not a, a huge guy right now, but it was all my my cognitive abilities, my ability to to see opportunities early to act before, because everyone else was a step faster than me. So I'd have to play with one touch when they could take two or three, and. You know, I I would have to start thinking ahead two or three passes, because if I was chasing the ball around, there's no way I'd ever touch it. And it it was something I didn't realize at the time. But, but by the time, I think the first time I ever really played my own age was as a senior at university. Wow. Um, and then that lasted for a year before playing pro. And then once again, I was one of the youngest
1: guys. <laughs> And we've chatted about it before. You even talked about not just the one touch football you had to play, but also um, if you saw a sliding tackle coming in, you had to be swift of foot to get the heck out of the way. So there would be guys that are
2: threatening to, that, like, if you, if you get past me again, I'm going to break your bleeping legs. Yeah. And, you know, as a, I think at the time I was probably 11. <laughs> I'm terrified from this 15 year old for the rest of the game of looking over my shoulders. I knew where he was at all times. Um, It was a big lesson in realizing how important it was to know where defenders are, which side they're on, what my own capabilities of, of can I still get on the ball? Can I still be effective and be far enough? Because if he can't foul me, it means he can't tackle me either. How can I create that extra bit of space that he can't even foul me in?
1: You mentioned uh, Bebeto, but uh, just growing up, like who are some of the athletes that you really admired and kind of wanted to style your uh, form of play after? I think Zidane was
2: definitely the longest running one. And it was just... He was such ability, a master of one-touch football. It just, That's his it. ability to make complicated things look so simple. And then when I started realizing that, technically realized just the passes he would saw, he would see the the way he created space. It just, it seemed so effortless. Um, and then, and then from the the other side, I was an Arsenal, a big Arsenal fan. Um, so the the Henri Burkamp yes. uh, duo was just, it was the <laughs> perfect blend of you know creativity with Burkamp, and then we had Henri who was just um
1: you know he he was another class altogether. i agree so uh lee after you graduated from sfu you played professionally share with us about that which team did you go to what was your position yeah
2: i mean it was it was a very interesting journey because um so i i ended up in rochester and i got signed as a fullback by a coach that got fired before the season started and the That's ownership hilarious. changed and and everything and it was i mean i'm i'm happy because right from from nationals after the first game uh, somebody came up and just said hey here's here's our card we'd love to talk to you afterwards and that was um you know finished the rest of the tournament gave him a call and and had a contract and an offer within a week nice. so it, it all happened very very quickly and and easily from that perspective and um you know yeah within a month it was terms were agreed and negotiated and signed and really got a lot of insight into how pro sports works where uh, it's often it's a fit or it's not a fit and there were times where i would i went in i i played outstanding team wins coach says i i did very well afterwards and then i don't see the field again for you know five or six games and that's just it's the reality of of how it works where there's you know there's people that are established experienced and and seen as the reliable ones and it's just a constant breaking through um yeah. and then and then i ended up uh well was developing what was a long-term injury didn't didn't know it from there, but oh, yeah. part way through the season started getting worse and worse, and then uh, you know that ended up being the only one as has never recovered from there but uh
1: oh wow what what, what uh, was that injury uh, what happened
2: so we never fully figured out what what it was, but it was my my hip and um, probably with about a i don't know about three weeks before playoffs started um it would take me you know, maybe 10 minutes to get out of bed in the morning and then I'd shower and slowly start moving. And then about 10 minutes, 15 minutes into training, it would feel fine. And then I'd be good for the rest of the training. And then the next day it would just be that little bit worse. And then on a day off it would start recovering a bit, but of course there's, there's not really any day off days off during season. Um, so just slowly, uh, kind of got worse and worse. And after, after some surgeries, uh, bone scans, injections, ultrasounds, kind of everything is still, still didn't ever figure it out. So slowly got my way into coaching,
1: c- coaching from there. And, uh, Wow. Yeah. So, uh, would you attribute that to kind of putting an end to your professional career?
2: Yeah, it, it it definitely was before signing pro. Actually, I had uh, I did both ACLs about three three four years apart in university. So it was just for me. It's I've I've had terrible injuries and I've come back stronger and more healthy. And and that right. was it. And right. I think my body was probably telling me. Uh, <laughs> telling me something I didn't want to listen to yeah. uh, with injuries over the years, but it was well, it's hard
1: to hear it because the implications of what that could mean are scary. You've devoted your life to something yeah. to grapple with this probability or possibility that you may not be able to continue. It's really hard to swallow. The psychological impact is hard. And we we always hear about mental toughness and, and push through it. And so I think there's always an inclination to do ourselves that disservice and just cause more harm. Yeah. And and the I mean to, to go back a little further, like
2: my my mom passed away when I was eleven and how I channeled that was on the field because that's oh. where things made sense. Yeah. Right. It was it was my escape from, you know, just dealing with with emotions and things that I didn't want to and and also just being at home during that time didn't feel the best right it's just like something was missing but then you put a ball at my feet and you put me outside and and I'm happy and so it was it was like identity wise and you mentioned accepting things you know when there's an injury it's like oh we've got past this before so I'll just do that again and and you know it was it was one that just never really went away but at the same time it wasn't it, you know, it wasn't something where get, uh, a, you know, broken femur and you just know it's done. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it, uh, it, it was one that I didn't really understand that the impacts uh, or, or deal with it until many years later and realize like, oh, this is what I was actually yeah. going through with wow. and
1: dealing with. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um so interesting. So um, uh, at, at one point you started this company called or you were a part of a company called Technique On Demand Consulting. Uh, that was my
2: my branding as a coach and consultant. Um, okay. And the, the name came from basically knowing what to do and when to do it. Hmm. And it was tying together sort of if you, if you think about what I needed to do back as a little kid <laughs> was being able to pull something off with less time than most other people, yeah. and and tying that in where um, on the coaching side it was we were great at knowing and telling players what to do and how to do it, the when and uh, like the on demand was from when it's demanded from you, which means you yes. need to actually recognize
0: yeah.
2: uh, not only what's required, but when it's required. And, and that was really the start of uh of me tying in a lot of the awareness, the decision making training and and working on, I refer to it as as cognitive skills, but it's specifically the the what needs to be done, when it needs to be done um, in the field itself.
1: Nice, nice. And so um, you were coaching for the Vancouver Whitecaps at that point?
2: I, I, so I started coaching with the Whitecaps kind of right from after my injury, just helping out with one of their youth teams to kind of stay sane and make a bit of money um and then ended up being full-time with them as as well as helping with sfu and towards the end of my time there was when i was starting technique on demand so this the seed was planted to start doing things on my own and and specifically address the things that we weren't doing at the top levels and you know it, it really was the awareness and decision-making
1: um, you know we spoke a little bit about uh, the mental side of the game and how um, it can also be detrimental uh, in, in your mind I mean these these techniques um, that you're talking about uh, being alert on the field and kind of seeing what players are coming before they actually happen there's a fair amount of cognitive uh, involvement there in your mind Lee like what's the best way to prep mentally for performance or to do well on the field so uh, there's there's almost two different components
2: for it and and the one that I think i I won't give as much time to because a lot of people talk about it is just really preparing ourselves to be confident enough and clear enough before a game, so just settling down our nerves and and being confident in our our own abilities because the more nervous somebody is the more focus narrows right and the more somebody panics like their visual field actually starts shrinking so if we're already coming into a game nervous right from the start that's the mode and mentality we're in is just everything shrunk and smaller so so from the prep before a game that's the biggest thing for me Um, when it comes to going a little bit further back into actual training sessions and, and games, it really comes into the cognitive side of, of habits to scan more often, to have our bodies in better positions, to see more and to be more open. Because uh, of course, the more information that a player has on the field and the earlier they see things changing or players moving and adapting, um, and the ability to just to see more teammates and track them better, those are the things that really transfer to the field when it comes to making a decision in in really no time. And a lot of those processes, like roughly 98% of what happens on the pitch is done subconsciously we're not thinking, okay, this person's here. So now that opens up this and now I pass to them because that's, that's way too slow to actually play in real time. Exactly. By the time you do all that analysis, (laughs) it's been scored against. (laughs) Yeah. So, so you say, okay, now I know what to do, but then everything's changed already. And, and so when you think about the amount of decisions and awareness and how all those processes work, if they're being done subconsciously in a game, that means you had to have had enough, enough time and and the right ways of training or just, you know, the 10,000 hours, which is a way of doing things. But I, I really don't think it's the best way of doing that anymore. Um, but that's a way of saying, okay, well, we take these cognitive, Uh, and uh, processes and start making them subconscious instead of conscious because of of course a coach at some point has to say you know maybe pass the ball in front of a player that's running instead of to their feet and you say okay now I get how that works and maybe (laughs) five or six and then well, that was, you know, a few years later, you know exactly to play the ball yeah. into space.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Johann Cruyff—that was his big thing. You got to pass it a meter in front of the player. Yeah. Let him and, run to the ball. <laughs> yeah,
2: and and a quick little uh, thing between uh, Henri and and Burkamp was when when Henri or when they first started working together. Burkamp would go through and tell players that whichever way he makes his first movement, he wants the player to pass it in the opposite side of the defender because he's making that first movement to create the space and draw the defender away. So don't actually play it to the way he's moving into that space. He
1: wants it on the other side. So you founded Preception in 2017, but I will say that you precepted (laughs) the company. You have been thinking about it for some time and you were aware that the market needed it. So when, when did you first conceive of Preception? Well, it was, it, it started kind of early on with the technique on
2: demand days. Right. I just had no idea what that was ever going to look like because, yeah. um, th- really the reason why, uh, perception and the the change of, of name and, and starting that company was because there was nothing in the market that would allow us to, to train or measure the awareness and decision-making, uh, on a field with multiple athletes in their natural environments and you know there's some there's some good companies in terms of uh you know having multiple object tracking or working on the the mental side of things and and even there's some good things in vr and ar but those start breaking down when you get to a sport like football or or american football or or hockey because nobody's going to be wearing things on their head, and so it became clear that we, you know, for myself, I had ways of of starting to integrate some of these trainings and starting to measure it, but there, what there was a huge gap in terms of having something where it's me taking video to a fully scalable solution that actually, instead of limiting us and holding back and spending way too much time to actually automate a lot of these things. And and it's sort of, it became a bit of a, a dream at first of, okay, let's just pretend that we can do all these things. What might that look like? And Then slowly turning those mites into uh, what it will look like, what it can look like. And then here's multiple solutions. How do we start tying them together? How do we start doing this? So. So it was, you know, it's, it was, and, and still has been a lot of, uh, development and refining and, and all of that. So that's, that's the real exciting part for me is to be really doing things that, that nobody else has done and, and is still even at the top level referred to as intangibles and training and measuring these intangibles and saying, you know, not only can we measure them, but we can, we can split them up into really fine pieces and understand them and tie them together and target them specifically. And and even starting to go into things like like group flow states and partial flow states that's that's the help of neuroscientists and other phds involved it's well to talk
1: about yeah the the genesis of the company how the people came together did you go and solicit them and have to sell them on the concept or were you guys just all thinking about this and
2: well so there's there's one person kind of there from from the beginning in various ways and that was uh he was like my my best friend and roommate jordan uh, where throughout university he was a varsity athlete as well and and we lived together for a few years and when I came back from New York it was the same and he's now a neuroscientist so along the way he we there was times we'd stay up till till three four in the morning just d- debating on various topics and and uh, one of them had to do with this awareness and decision making and could we teach it? Could we not? And, and he put me in touch with some of his professors. and um, so even though he, he had his academic path that he went down, I went down the coaching path, um, he was sort of there from from the beginning. But then from the, the other side, it was, you know, it was a lot of me grinding through it on my own sometimes unnecessarily and and just because i i had to learn how to run a tech company so it was uh you know it was a lot of just bumping into things and <laughs> and and immersing myself amongst other founders and entrepreneurs but then over the last uh the last year has really been getting the team together and and figuring out people that fit, letting ones that don't fit go. And and I realized that it's kind of come full circle in a way of, of me needing to grow into an, a founder, an entrepreneur, and learning what's required there. And then almost tying in my past as a coach and saying okay well now let's let's create that team let's find people that are that are special at certain things Mm -hmm. uh and in all the areas i'm weak (laughs) and let's start putting them together and and Mm -hmm. where i'm fortunate is is when we're doing something really challenging yet unique um it filters out a lot of people where it's only the ones that are really good and love challenges and, and specialized that actually say like, Hey, this, this is a cool problem.
1: And you've been self-funded.
2: Yes. Yeah. It was, uh, I realized that it was something that I wasn't going to be able to shake from my mind and and there was no other option um because it was just is eating away at me for so long and then uh, i you know i was fortunate enough that before i was i was able to buy a condo and and then the vancouver housing market ended up going up quite a bit and i thought well if i'm going to do this i need to do it properly and that means no more income through coaching none of that stuff um and and in ways i even did that purposefully to say, well, I, I don't want to ever have that parachute. Yeah. Um, and then so, so sold the, sold the condo cause building hardware and, and doing that is expensive. So, right. um, so ended up going all in and, and I mean, it, there's a, there's always a chance it'll fail, but, uh, you know, with uh, with all the learning,
1: all the growing, and everything, it'll be worth worth it, no matter what. Like, what are the metrics you use to show success or, or performance?
2: Yeah, so I I won't be able to go into that too much, okay. um, just just because of where we are. But what but I are you, is it really... just on a very broad level? Is like reaction? Yeah,
1: memory able to gauge that or
2: no? So so what I can say is that um, like there there's almost. Every when when we take things and go away from just looking at athletes performing a series of actions, which works in something like track and field, for example, um, where it's it's very linear. The yeah. the starting gun goes off, and then people start running, and you can measure each step and so on. But that's because there's there's no real decisions happening aside from maybe uh, trying to put in a little bit extra, adjusting form a bit, or or that type of thing. Um, but when you get into a sport that's very messy, what happens is the the theory of it being a series of actions doesn't work anymore because every action that I tried. To, to do as an as a as a player would would be impacted by everyone else around me I might try to turn left but then the defenders right there and I have to adjust so when we look at things in terms of interactions the cognitive side becomes very important so there's the the action itself and then there's the pre-action processes and the pre-action pro while we can measure the action the pre-action processes are what we really get a lot of insight into and that's like when environments change Mm -hmm. first of all do athletes recognize that or not when space opens and closes do they recognize it and then how then there's recognition then there's making sense of it then there's coming to a decision which all happens before the person changes their behavior and that's that's kind of the key part of it is is really understanding the cognitive side and the sense making and the awareness portion and so those are the things that we give insight into and then being able to pinpoint okay well each athlete is weaker in certain areas um of of those pre-action processes And as a as a group as well, that happens where defenders, for example, as a unit will cover more areas uh, visually and spatially better than others. Yeah. And so it it goes beyond just the the individual as well.
0: Yeah. Okay. gotcha.
1: Well, so um, with Precept, um, what's your vision? Where would you like to see it be? And um, where do you want to take the company? Yeah
2: so uh I'll I'll give sort of the the higher level portion uh, once again but the the main thing is human decision making is the same across the board whether that's in corporate whether that's in sport or military or you know pretty pretty much everywhere even just the way we decide to talk to each other yeah. and the the main thing for us as a company and where we want to take it is the more we want to be at the forefront and the leaders of both the academic side and in terms of really good partnerships with universities and that's where someone like jordan comes in where he's a phd in neuroscience and and is an expert at, at research and and helping with that side of things with an athletic background and then on the other side of it the for me academics without application is a bit useless and same of putting something out into the world without it actually being academically backed Um, so for us we we're going to start at the top end where every every step matters every second has consequences um and the main thing for us is really just to and from a personal level i don't want to ever have to tell the player sorry your awareness and decision making isn't good enough and there's nothing you can do about it because gotcha. okay. I had that conversation um, a couple too many times. I, of course, didn't say there's nothing you can do about it. But the answers I was giving them, I knew that it wouldn't help. Yeah. And, okay. and that's the main thing for me is just to, to, to change that whole paradigm of, you know, it used to be intangible, but yeah. that's not the case anymore. It's, great.
1: All right. So. Lee, thank you mm-hmm. so much. It's been really great. I uh, appreciate uh, it, uh, your being on the show. Uh, thank you, Asim. It's been it's been a
2: pleasure. And, um, you know, definitely stay tuned to to things that you keep doing and the guests you have because there's been some great ones already. And, and I'm happy to be a part of that.
0: Appreciate that. Thanks again. Thanks. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 of the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hannity and editing provided by Neil Sherman.